0: It's that time of the day again, and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And, as usual, it's Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was.
1: A week, Jane, listener, when, as governments relax COVID restrictions in the interests of the economy, they admit this could lead to a new upsurge in cases, but the case for the economy is more urgent, we put to the Chamber of Profits, would it accept the blame for the victims of any new outbreak? Uh, certainly not. Any new outbreak will be totally down to irresponsible protesters ignoring the scientific advice not to protest, not to observe social distancing. To make matters worse, they ignored big supremo Scuttleby more son, who backed up by so responsible a minister for stuffing up the economy as Matthias Rotten Tudor, sensibly pointed out that, yes, yes, they had a right to protest, he supported that right, but... Oh, how they were insulting those who couldn't visit their dear old mum on Mother's Day, who couldn't honour the honourable dead on Trained Killer Glorification Day, who couldn't attend the funerals of their loved ones. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor fastiness cloaked in Mr. Nice Guy Camouflage. The protesters insulting true blue Aussies across the land should at least have the courtesy to self-isolate for 14 days, the great leaders advised, to avoid giving all those decent, non-protesting, couldn't-give-us-stuff true blue Aussies the virus. While on the good news front, footies back and 44 blokes tackle and bump and bash the proverbial out of each other for a couple of hours of big business that used to be sport and leisure. Blood and sweat rolling on the ground amid those two integral parts of men's sport, the spit and the nose blow. So they'll have to self-isolate for 14 days after every game. Of course not. Again, there's no comparison. And the workers, you insist, have to go back to work. Clearly, they'll have to self-isolate for 14 days after every day's work. Don't be absurd. There's no comparison, again, to irresponsible protesters. Uh, But it's a great employment opportunity because you'd have to have 14 times the normal workforce, real job creation. He's gone purple. But as the authorities prepare to... And the Black Lives Matter organisers like they find protesters supporting no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, COVID has presented them declaring many crimes... Crime, postponing yet again introducing recommendations of the Her Most Gracious Majesty Commission into the banks of the financial sector. Well, they've only had two or three years, but just how many high profile financial practitioners have been charged again? Anyway, apparently, charging poor bankers with ripping off and forcing them to rip off not quite so blatantly would be a health threat. Thankfully, as compensation for these activities not being declared illegal and responsible bankers and financial gurus not being charged, the big banks have pocketed about $200 from government largesse during the health crisis. And directors' disclosure rules have been lifted. Apparently, disclosure is also a health threat. Oh, and there's new restrictions on class actions against boardrooms to avert clear health threats. So let's make sure those protest organisers have the book thrown at them, because they are the health threat. To prove Black Lives Matter, the Western True Blue Aussie government has approved an application by Bloody Huge Prophets, Bloody Huge Polluter, the Big Aussie, to blow up a few more indigenous sites because the Terranulius people have no rights over Terranulius sacred sites. But, bloody huge polluter says it respects the terra nullius non people and land, uh, but just not enough not to blow it up. Following Rio Tato the planet wiping out 40,000 plus years of history. Well, it's only history, not, not real history, but then a former Rio Big Supremo, Sam Walsh, is now head of the True Blue He Mint, and good news. He still respects Black Lives Matter, because they buy gold from Golden Belly, a PNG gold miner, which... OK, has been convicted of pollution, particularly with mercury, and standover tactics, and child labour, but goodness me, he's providing jobs for those children, and OK, the Supremo of Golden Valley was given 16 years two years ago for beating his helicopter pilot to death, and then released a year later, but at least he's not an illegal protester, and the company said, well... Families like to work together, so that children just love working with their parents amid the mercury and other chemicals. So Sam maintains the same commitment to Black Lives Matter as he practised at Rio Tato the planet. A market research study into public attitudes to the lockdown and ongoing easing of restrictions found, among other things, that a third of workers are worried about losing their jobs or having their hours cut. But their concerns are nothing compared to those described as feeling the most concerned about the economy those investing in property and the stock market. Oh don't our hearts bleed for the poor dears, don't our hearts go out to them. Still some good news on that front. No, that's an understatement. Exciting, exciting news on that front. Two of them. Two of our favourites from the Trublowazi Industry Profits Group. Ines Will Cost, the workers, and Tim Piper, the profits, were honoured by Her Most Gracious Majesty last week, along with academic economist Ian Harper on About Workers' Greed, who regularly receives government funding to write reports and recommendations on how to staunch worker greed. All three, presumably four, services to Making the Filthy Rich Filthy Richer. And warm, warm congratulations to them from 3CR in the week that was. And how can we forget the highest honour in the land to form a big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses? Congratulations, Tiny. The timing impeccable as the groaning national health system attempts to respond to a national crisis, shackled only by the massive funding cuts initiated by Tiny, because he knew all that money on public health was money stolen from the super-efficient private health industry to which he transferred the public purse. Thoroughly deserved for services too, getting rid of the public sector. It's hard to believe his own electorate got rid of him, although it gave him time to have the knife wound in the back treated properly and the blood washed away. Oh, and the helicopter kid, Bronnie, bash up the workers, also off an honour for God knows what, probably for services to herself by keeping her bum on the plush seat for well over two decades, her only achievement I can think of if we don't count expense rots. She modestly declared her honour would be an example, an encouragement for young girls. I say to young girls, the earlier you can get your bum on a plush seat, the longer you can bludge on the public purse. On great contributions to the public discourse, Donald's a real problem for this segment. Which of his gems to highlight? Compounded by the fact we're now recording this on Sunday mornings due to the obvious restrictions, leaving two more whole days of his ravings we can't include. But he hit a high when he declared an older person had deliberately fallen over when confronted by a few gentle cops and deliberately lay on the ground bleeding from a head wound while the <laughs> gem- stepped over him because he was an anti-fascist, the worst imaginable threat to public order, opposing the rights of fascists, the constitutional rights of fascists, to free speech, to know and show that black lives don't matter. Hail, trample the poor. Although Donald was prepared to upset his fascist constituency by declaring he had done more for blacks than any big since Abraham Lincoln, which in US ob- terms is saying a lot, but it, it does show his innate modesty but he can see that he conceded someone else did something as well as he can. And Donald standing in front of some Catholic monument to John Paul II with Melania, staring at nothing in particular for a purpose never explained, it got me contemplating. St. J.P. II the monument boasted, and must admit I'd forgotten that arch-conservative supporter of the filthy rich was now a saint, or maybe it never registered. But then I thought, given that based on the beliefs of those who believe in such things, that he is in heaven, and Donald will know he'll end up there, and then there's the highest honour in the country, tiny a bit more for the bosses, who knows that's where he's headed, then heaven is the last place I'd want to be. Although, finally, Donald would insist he swap with God, or God swap with him. Me Kevin greet again. Best guard ever, ever. Making it even more unbearable, Paradise Lost. My idea of hell, like listening to the week was. Good afternoon.
0: And good afternoon, Mr Kevin Healy.
1: Hey, this is Jacob from Friday Ray, and I'm here to ask you to please dig deep. 3CR's June Station Appeal. I know times are tough that's why I'm asking you, for those of you who are still a bit cashed up, to dig deeper than ever, because many of our regular supporters can't right now and you need to take up the slack you know you have to you know you want to, you know you should so just do it. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on the big red word right near the top of the page, it says donate and help keep Radical Radio live on air
0: on the 22nd of June, between 7 and 9 pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, an online webinar will launch a statement by APAN and AJDS, and you are invited to register and attend. APAN, Australian and Palestine Advocacy Network, is a United National voice advocating for justice and peace for Palestinians. Supporting grassroots advocacy and active political and in the media. And the AJDS, the Australian Jewish Democratic Society, is a progressive voice amongst Jews, a Jewish voice amongst progressives. Today I'm speaking with one of the four speakers for the webinar, Dr. Geordie Silverstein. I asked Geordie about her background and also the background of the AJDS and its work where it started but I mentioned first that the AJDS was actually a programmer here on 3CR in the early years. I
2: think that might be right yeah we're a long time before my involvement but yeah I think if it wasn't AJDS specific program then yeah I think they might have contributed to something along the way I'm not quite I'm not 100% sure on that but I think you might be right.
0: And your background Geordie? My background so yeah I mean I guess
2: Yes, yeah, work wise I'm a historian and, but I've been involved with AJDS since 2012. Um, AJDS has been around since the early 80s. So it was founded by Norman and Evelyn Rothfield and a couple of other people and, and then has developed my, so yeah, I do activist stuff with AJDS but then also other kinds of solidarity activism with different groups and just, I guess, by myself, just doing things, turning up wherever is useful.
0: And just talk about the AJDS. From the 80s, what what was its brief and how has it operated through those years?
2: So the the tagline for AJDS is that it's a Jewish voice amongst progressives and a progressive voice amongst Jews. So it's really tried to occupy that unique space of speaking to different communities and wanting to, I guess, yeah, push progressive Jewish politics as far as possible, and it's you know generally never been afraid to take difficult stances. So way back when you know two states, on um, Israel Palestine was a question. You know they were one of the first groups in Australia, Jewish groups in Australia, to come in in support of two states. They have been yeah I guess been a space for open discussion about complex issues. So yeah, a lot of the work's been around. Israel and Palestine, but also on a range of issues. At times, people have worked on nuclear disarmament, um, other environmental issues. Always, indigenous solidarity has been a big thing. Working around with refugees and working um, refugee solidarity has also been a big thing.
0: Yeah, that's kind of who it's been and what we do. I'd imagine also it's been or it still is difficult to get a voice on the mainstream media that it seems to be the Zionist lobby who gets the the interviews and the opinion pieces in the press.
2: Yeah, sure. I think it's really hard to navigate what goes in, in the media. We definitely try at different times and we try with different kinds of media, internal Jewish publications and Jewish community publications, but then also more broadly. So I think we try where we can, but we're also, you know, yeah, media is not the be-all and end-all and there's other ways of reaching people. And So we try to do as much as we can with the kinds of voices and spaces that we have access
0: to. Can I ask you first about your definition of anti-Semitism, which is the basis of your um, statement, joint statement with APAN? I guess the thing with anti-Semitism is that it's actually quite a complex
2: form of form of racism or white supremacy or those kinds of things. What's interesting or terrible about anti-semitism is its kind of flexibility, and obviously racism and white supremacy in general are, are very flexible always, but it's kind of due to both, you know, disease carriers and insidious and dirty, but then also incredibly powerful. And it's really the idea of Jewish power is so central to um, anti-Semitism. Obviously, anti-Semitism varies in intention and effect um, and in scale. So, you know, we see just the other week a swastika being painted onto the Canberra golf course, you know, those kinds of things. And we see
3: sort of a rise
2: of these kind of markers of anti-Semitism, the kind of symbolism of anti-Semitism. Obviously, you know, the most extreme kinds of anti-Semitism are the history of the Holocaust and and a kind of historical violence which we carry. I've said in the statement, you know, that it's broadly speaking animosity, prejudice or discrimination against Jewish people, history, religion and culture. It employs dehumanisation, exploitation, marginalisation and violence. And it's often invisible to people outside the group. So it's really important that people open space to uh, make the effort to see it.
0: Well, we're talking about the launch of the joint statement on anti-Semitism with APAN. How long have the discussions been to get to this stage?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting and wonderful process, I think, of bringing these two groups together with different ideas and understandings around anti-Semitism. What we're trying to talk about in the statement is that anti-Semitism exists and it's very real and it needs to be combated. At the same time, accusations of of anti-Semitism are often weaponized to shut down criticism of Israel. And so that's really what the statement's about. So there were sort of lengthy discussions as we went back and forward trying to think about... What is valid criticism of Israel, and what isn't valid criticism of Israel? Where what are the valid accusations of anti-Semitism, and what aren't? Um, So the statement is certainly not saying that criticism of Israel is never anti-Semitic, but we're saying that these two groups are are coming together to say that too often accusations of anti-Semitism are used in order to, as part of a project of shutting down uh, criticism of Israel. So yeah, it was a lot of backwards and forwards, and a lot of really productive conversations and learning together and thinking together.
0: And the importance of Palestinian justice. Exactly. So
2: that's what's central to to this this statement is that it's not okay to to weaponise accusations of anti-Semitism in this way. That it shut down paths for, for achieving Palestinian achieving Palestinian justice. That it. it Um, cuts off relationships between Palestinians and Jews. It's a form of being, you know, opposed to to Palestinians and to their rights to self-determination, to achieving justice, to ending, you know, the the incredible violence that's going on in Palestine at the moment.
0: For the webinar you have four speakers, including yourself. Can you talk about what you hope to add to this webinar and also, the other three people, who they are.
2: The other um, speakers are uh, Nasser Mashni, who comes from APAN, uh, Mahir Mugrabi, who's a journalist um, and commentator, uh, Vivian Porjolt, who is from Sydney and, and is a Jewish activist in Sydney and is part of Jews Against the Occupation and other things, and then myself. So we've got... yeah. A couple of Jews and a couple of Palestinians. What I hope to offer is, I guess, this, a bit of a you know historical perspective and, and to open up these questions around how do we think critically around what it means to be in solidarity with Palestinians and how can we be usefully critical of Israeli government policies? How can we as Jews push forward this criticism of Israel and what the government does at sort of thinking those kinds of things through
0: do you believe you're setting a precedent for other countries to take on a statement such as this a way forward i think similar things are going
2: on around the world there's part of this is comes out of concerns around the international the the era definition the Holocaust definition around what is anti-Semitism and the ways that it has been used to shut down criticism of Israel as being anti-Semitic and there's lots of countries around the world where this definition has taken up been taken up quite a lot more than in Australia so there was actually you know a planned sort of conference workshop seminar thing that was meant to go ahead in Canada in May where we were a bunch of Jews from around the world, we're going to sort of do this work and think think through these kinds of approaches. And that obviously had to be cancelled because of the pandemic um, and the inability to travel. But there are these kinds of conversations happening in various places around the world. And whether it's formally through joint statements or it's more informally, I think rather than us being part of a precedent, I think we're part of a global move to really assert that it's not inherently anti-Semitic to criticise Israel and to work for Palestinian justice.
0: But also important when you have a government like we have and governments in the past who willy-nilly support Israel, whatever, no support for the Palestinians. Yes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what we're hoping is that this statement creates more space for people to engage to challenge to say to the government I mean I think this government's you know clearly a bit of a lost cause and, and there's limits to what can be achieved through the current government but I think yeah absolutely we, we need more people speaking out on this more often in, in order that we create the space for different stories different narratives to, to be in the public space
0: so that's the, that's the hope for the future
2: yes Absolutely, and yeah, this isn't an uh, endpoint. This, this joint statement is absolutely not an endpoint. It's you know it's part of an ongoing conversation, and we hope that it leads to more conversation in the future and more action, um, and people being bolder in in what they're prepared to say.
0: How can people join in to so
2: the online launch of the statement? Yes. So if you go to to both AJDS and APAN. Have um, been advertising on our websites and on our social media. Or if you join the email lists of either groups. Uh, we're sending out emails about it. We, re- you know, there's already I think a couple hundred people registered, and we're really excited for even more people to join us. One of the things that these online this online moment creates is the space for lots of people to join in from interstate, from overseas, but yeah, from I guess particularly from around the country. So. The easiest thing is to kind of, I guess, search to Google for um, AJDS or APAN, um, find us on Facebook, our Twitter um, or our website and you can get the link from there. So the launch, it's called The Joint Statement on Antisemitism.
0: Thanks, Geordie. Thanks so much. Dr. Geordie Sewerstein from the Australian Jewish Democratic Society If you'd like to register for that online webinar on Monday the 22nd of June at 7 o'clock, get onto the webpage of Australian Jewish Democratic Society or APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network.
3: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio eight five five am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
0: Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new
3: laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501
4: weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's zero four three four one three six five zero one, Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at
2: covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. In May,
5: mining giant Rio Tinto
0: detonated explosives at the Jukun Gorge in Western Australia, destroying two ancient rock shelters, a significant indigenous site dating back 46,000 years. But Rio Tinto is no stranger to destruction of the culture of indigenous peoples in countries other than Australia. And today the focus is Bougainville and the legacy of the Panguna mine, previously one of the world's largest copper and gold mines. Until it was forced closed by local people in 1989, who destroyed most of the infrastructure in protest against the environmental destruction caused by the mine. The mine generated US dollars in revenue support by Rio Tinto and the PNG government. This was followed by a brutal 10 year war before peace was returned, and the people of Bougainville are still waiting for independence from PNG. The issue of the environmental destruction caused by the mine over nearly 20 years has been taken up by an Australian human rights organisation, the Human Rights Law Centre. And today I'm speaking with Karen Adams, the legal director of the centre and author of the report, After the Mine, Living with Rio Tinto's Deadly Legacy. Prior to her work with the Human Rights Legal Centre, Karen has been involved in working for human rights in both Australia and Australia. And international and I asked you to talk a little about that work.
6: I am currently the uh, a legal director at the Human Rights Law Centre in Melbourne where I lead business and human rights work but I previously have worked as a, as a lawyer and spent a lot of my career working in the UK um, at a firm called Lee Day that specializes in cases against British multinationals for human rights and environmental abuses particularly in the developing world so I worked on a number of cases there against British companies that were involved in dumping of toxic waste, involved in child labour and forced land clearances in Cambodia and also against some cases against the British government in relation to the unlawful detention and abuse of prisoners held and captured in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So probably the, the biggest case that I worked on there was a case against a British company called Trafficura, which is a, a multinational oil trader who were involved in dumping uh, a large quantity of toxic waste in uh, the Ivory Coast in Africa. And I spent three years working on that case and we were eventually able to uh, force the company to pay a substantial settlement to people who had been affected. When they dumped the waste, around 100,000 people um, ended up having to go to hospital, complaining of breathing problems and other uh, illnesses as a toxic cloud enveloped the city of the port city of Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. So that's probably one of the most substantial cases that I brought against companies. But I've now come back to Australia with a, a view to helping to develop this kind of litigation and also advocacy in relation to what companies should be doing here.
0: Well, what we're talking about is the ongoing pollution from the the former Rio Tinto mine at Panguna on Bougainville. What was the impetus for this report that the human rights legal centre has instigated?
6: Yeah, so we, I mean, we have been aware for a long time, of course, um, about the situation at Panguna. It's one of the probably more notorious cases of, corporate impunity in relation to the actions of Australian companies overseas as you probably know um, Rio Tinto operated that mine from 1972 to 1989 and it caused such substantial environmental damage that it resulted in an uprising by local people um, which forced the mine's closure but the legacy of that mine still remains and continues to have impacts today because they left behind um, around a billion tonnes of mine waste tailings which were dumped straight into the local river systems and have really destroyed a lot of the Kawarong River Valley and that has continues to have very significant impacts for communities living along that river valley. We were contacted by some academics in Queensland um, not so long ago who had been working with the Catholic Diocese um, of Loganville to try and document some of the impacts on communities because Rio Tinto had divested from the mine in 2016 and was now saying it had no responsibility for dealing with any of this waste that had been left behind. And we decided on the basis of those discussions that we needed to go out there and have a look for ourselves. So I've spent a lot of the last eight months going out there and working with local people to document the impacts on all aspects of people's lives, which is something that hadn't really been done Previously, and we, you know, I was just shocked by the extent of the damage and the extent of the impacts on people's lives that we found. What did you find? The impacts are very substantial. So, firstly, there's the pollution of the the river itself. So, I mean, one of the first things that strikes you when you go out there is that the water that is, continues to run out of the mine pit and into local river systems is bright blue, a bright unnatural blue in colour, and that's from copper contamination from the mine. And that is continuing to pollute the river, the river that people continue to need to use for for bathing in for crossing every day to go to school or to tend their crops. A lot of people pan for gold in the river as their source of income and therefore are spending hours every day immersed in this water, which you know is, creates a highly dangerous situation. but not only do you have the contamination of the river, you also have this billion tons of mine waste tailings, which looks like massive sort of moonscape of piles of grey sand um, that's piled up everywhere. And that continues to wash into the river systems. And as it washes downstream, and Bougainville has very, very um, heavy rains in the rainy season, when that washes downstream, it creates incredibly dangerous conditions for people downstream. So firstly, it creates flooding with giant kind of mud sludge um, going into, uh, or into people's villages and across their farmlands downstream. It also creates extremely dangerous conditions for people to having to cross the rivers um, and as I said many people don't have any choice but to cross the rivers on a daily basis because there are no bridges and they you know their crops are on the other side of the river or their school is on the other side of the river and so you've got people being washed away and people being put in very dangerous situations on a daily basis because you have these huge volumes of sand being washed into the rivers and that's also compounding of course the um the pollution in the rivers. So you have a very a dangerous situation, and there's around ten to fourteen thousand people who live all along the river system downstream, and they're being impacted in all sorts of ways. So in some cases for communities, the major impact is that their water supplies are being contaminated with polluted water. So a lot of people will rely on other nearby creeks and tributaries for their fresh drinking water and that when the river, the polluted river comes and floods those areas, of course, all of that drinking water sources all get contaminated and filled with mud sludge. So some people are now having to walk very long distances to get water. In other cases, um, people talk to us about kids getting sick a lot after swimming in the rivers and we saw kids with lots of open sores all over their legs and arms and also reporting um, a lot of respiratory-trapped infections from bathing and swimming in the rivers. In other situations, we peak communities further upstream that live right near these huge piles of mine waste, reported a lot of breathing problems from dust blowing into their houses constantly from the mine waste. So it's a whole range of different impacts, but collectively, um, they impact on a whole range of dif- different aspects of people's lives and create very serious problems.
0: Did you find out how many people were forced to leave their lands during
6: that mine's operations and what's happened to those people? Well, a lot of people had already been forced during the mine's operations to leave their lands either because of the destruction or because they were forcibly relocated to make way for the mine's machinery or for the pit itself. And a lot of those people were moved onto land owned by other communities and in many cases the population sizes have now grown and that's creating its own problems because of land shortages and food shortages because these are all largely subsistence farmers who rely substantially on still on, on their land in order to produce food to live on. And so there's a huge problem as well with those relocated people not having a proper home um, to go to and now getting into confrontations and, and problems with The landowners of the land that they've been forced to relocate onto. Um, There's also issues in some other places of people just squatting on other land because they just don't, you know, because they've been impacted more recently and have just had to make their way and find a place where they can stay because there's no, you know, Rio Tinto has obviously not been there now for many years, but their impacts are, are ongoing and whole new areas of land uh now being flooded, especially further downstream closer to the coast with the mine waste. So it's continually creating dislocation for communities.
0: Do the people talk about the impact of that mine on the flora and fauna of the area?
6: Yeah, they spoke a lot about that. One community, for example, that we visited, they were um, people who relied substantially on a freshwater lake that was in a sort of wetland area some ways down from the mine and in January last year the, that entire lake was flooded with mud from the mine The fishermen who were there actually saw the mud breaking through the forest in a wave and coming and, and flooding in and said that they just had to stand there and watch all of the fish die in this lake and their livelihood just be completely wiped out and so a lot of them are now forced into what, you know, going further upstream in order to pan for gold and to survive with wives and kids because they don't have any alternative source of income. In other areas, people talked about the destruction of their sago palms, which are the palms that they not normally use to construct traditional, their traditional houses. So in other places, the flooding and death of the sago palms caused by the mine waste is meaning that people don't have any any resources for building traditional houses anymore? In other places, people were talking about the fact that their crops won't grow anymore because they're getting copper seeping up from the from the contaminated tailings that's impacting their land and poisoning the soil. So there's a whole again a whole range of different impacts that are that are uh, affecting people's food security and and also their access to water.
0: Did people talk about the, the time after Rio Tinto was forced out? and the ensuing war that went on for over 10 years, and how that has impoverished the people even further.
6: Yeah, so people, I mean, people, there is a lot of anger still around Rio Tinto's involvement in helping to start that conflict with Papua New Guinea. It's not so long ago that substantial documents were revealed and came into the public life about the exact extent to which uh, Rio Tinto. Put pressure on Papua New Guinea to undertake a military action in order to recapture the mine after they were forced out. Um, And so I think there is a lot of, there's still a lot of anger about that. I mean, that wasn't the main focus of our work, so it wasn't the thing that we were mostly speaking to people about while we were out there. But um, I I think there's a very clear, strong sense from people that Rio Tinto needs to make right the problems of the past, and they need to come back and listen directly to people on the ground about the problems that the mine has created for them and is continuing to create for them and that Rio Tinto needs to contribute substantially to helping to fix those problems.
0: You mentioned that Rio Tinto diversified from the mine in 2000 or from the company in 2014. What efforts were made up to that time to bring Rio Tinto to the table and face the issues that they should have faced many years ago?
6: Yeah, so Rio Tinto, even after the war ended, Rio Tinto stayed in control of the Panguna mine for a very long time up until 2016. And over the course of that period, there were attempts made by the Bougainville government and landowners to hold discussions with Rio Tinto. And in 2014, Rio Tinto, through its subsidiary on the ground, Bougainville Copper, um, held discussions with communities. And that was in the context However, of them thinking about potentially reopening the mine, um, so that's an important qualifier. But people made it very clear to them that an essential precondition to any discussions about the mine reopening was that the, the environmental damage and, and the social damage that have been caused needed to be addressed first. And uh, there was an agreement that you know that was, that was being discussed to put in place environmental and social studies. To do an assessment of the site and work out what sorts of solutions could be found to address a lot of these problems. and that they had gone a substantial way down that path and and it had a lot of buy in from local people when Rio Tinto instead decided unilaterally announced that they were going to be reviewing their their investment in the mine and eventually um, in two thousand and sixteen made the decision that they were going to divest from the mine. And that meant that those studies never went ahead, and that there was no there was no money to to undertake that work um, that that would have been laid the important foundations for any sort of clean up.
0: Well, what law is there or what can bring them to the table now,
6: two thousand and twenty after six years of divesting? Well, I think that there's a number of things. one of the reasons for us doing the report was I think that it's really important to bring the situation and the message about what the situation is on the ground to Rio Tinto's investors. Investors have a lot of leverage with companies and I think investors are increasingly aware um, of their responsibilities under the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights and of the company's responsibility in that regard. And Rio Tinto very much is a company that holds itself out as a leader on environmental and human rights issues. So I think that there's an important role to play by investors in using their leverage with the company to try and say, well, you talk the talk, you also need to walk the walk on these things and you can't simply hope to get rid of a problem by divesting and walking away from it. You know, that doesn't solve these huge environmental and human rights issues that are happening on the ground. And then, and then secondly, I think, you know, we're obviously working with communities to also look at any other legal options that they might have to hold Rio Tinto to account. And you know that's not something I can speak about too much publicly, but I think that there are options for communities to hold the company to account.
0: You've put questions to shareholders' meetings in Australia and in Britain. What result from that? The shareholder
6: meetings, unfortunately this year because of the COVID crisis that We weren't able to attend the shareholder meetings in person as you normally would, and we were only able to put those questions remotely uh, through a process that was very much controlled by the company. And they put our questions and they gave responses that were very unsatisfactory and really didn't answer the questions that communities had put to them about whether they... We put two questions to them, essentially. Firstly, whether they would be prepared to re-engage with stakeholders in Bougainville about these issues, and secondly, you know how they justified not complying with their the obligations that they say that they espouse and, and uphold in relation to international law and environmental law, and they really sidestepped those questions. But I think, particularly in Lito, a number of other human rights issues that have also arisen um, recently, and not you know people will probably be most familiar. With the one that's occurred just in the last week here in Australia with Rio Tinto's involvement in destroying the Jukan Gorge rock shelters here in Australia in order to expand their iron ore mine. But I think that there is a, you know, we've become increasingly aware through the research that we've done in relation to Spoganville that it's only one of a large number of situations where Rio Tinto has ignored the wishes of local communities and has created very substantial environmental damage that has had huge impact on people's culture, on their livelihoods um, and on their human rights. And I think that you know, now is therefore a good time to be speaking with investors and putting pressure on the company because if this is a pattern of behaviour, it's not an aberration. For a company that holds itself out as a leader on these issues, they need to you know, have a spotlight shone on them in particular when they don't live up to the standards that they, they claim to espouse. There is an election scheduled for August on Bougainville. Does that impact at all on your work? Not in relation to Rio Tinto. I think one of the things that really unites people on Bougainville is there are differences of opinion in relation to whether the mine should be part of Bougainville's future again, um, which is, you know, that's obviously a very difficult decision for a tiny abstract island that's attempting to become the world's newest nation. Those are very difficult decisions. But the one thing that everyone is united on is the need for Rio Tinto to address its past legacy there. Um, Rio Tinto is not one of the mining companies that is in discussions with the government around a potential reopening of Panguna. However, there are a number of other Australian Australian companies that are involved in that and I really hope that they will be watching this closely because it's very clear that any company that's seeking to operate in Bogaville now needs to take a, a very different approach to the one that Rio Tinto has taken in the past in relation to the Panguna site.
0: Finally, Karen, what's been the re- reaction to your report?
6: Well, I mean, the company has engaged with us and we're continuing to engage with them about it and we hope to do so further. We have had several meetings, including with the chairman, Simon Thompson, but I think that nothing is substantial is going to be done unless there are other people who are willing to also use their relationship with the company to put pressure on them because Rio Tinto is not simply going to turn around and change its mind on this on the basis of one report. We hope that by producing the report, we would bring it to public attention and document much more clearly what the impacts are so that there's no possibility that they can say that they're not aware of what's happening on the ground and what the impacts of their mine have been. But that's only the start, obviously, of a much longer engagement with the company that needs to happen not just by us but by their own investors if this is going to change. Thank you very much for covering this issue. I think it's really important for communities on Bougainville to to know that these issues are being heard by people in Australia because they often feel that they've been forgotten about and that people here don't care about the situation that Australia had very substantial involvement in helping to create. You know, this, this mine was opened back when Bougainville was still under Australian colonial control and would not have happened had it not been for decisions made by the Australian government and one of our biggest companies. So, I think, you know, we have a very substantial responsibility for ensuring that this terrible legacy that we've left is addressed. Thanks very much. Thank
0: you. You've been listening to Dr. Karen Adams from the Human Rights Law Centre. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at
1: 3cr.org.au
0: forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. We've all done it over the past couple of months, a new experience for most of us, and some coped and are still coping better than others. I'm talking about our stay-at-home lives during the COVID-19 pandemic. One group of residents in suburban Brunswick decided to find out how their local community Was coping or not what they believe were the positives and negatives of new stay-at-home lives? And I'm speaking with one of the residents, Nancy Atkin from the Brunswick Residents Network. Nancy, take us back to the beginning of this project. When was it and who had the idea?
7: The project occurred to us, well, really at the start of the closed-down stay-at-home period, we had had plans to do a big survey about walking and how much people walked, and we'd, we'd shelved that because obviously it wasn't going to have results that applied in the long term. And Anyway, so we got together and said, well, why don't we just do a survey about how people are reacting to staying at home and to the changes in the environment? So three or four of us from the Brunswick Residents Network designed a survey, and the survey's is that. It's people's reactions, how people see, saw the impacts of having to stay at home, what they liked, what they didn't like, what had changed for them. Mainly open-ended questions, and because of that, we got some really interesting results. We put it out in the third week of April and told people they had a week to fill it in. We just circulated it, advertised it on Facebook. It was a Monkey survey, so it's totally online. So uh, the people who answered it, all people with or some online um, devices, we had an amazing result. We got 189 (laughs) responses within the seven days that it was open and quite, I guess, voluble responses. People were getting things off their chest and explaining stuff about how they felt enthusiastically.
0: Just take you back one step, Nancy. Who and what is the Brunswick Residence Network
7: The Brunswick Residents Network is what its name suggests. It's a network of people around Brunswick. We do things like putting out a newsletter um, on local planning and environment and traffic and other issues. Pretty well well received and well read because it gives a a bit of detail about what's going on. We run public meetings. We raise issues. We lobby councils and government and and so on. And we pick up... um, Particular themes on on those various issues from time to time. At the moment, with uh, with another moreland-wide group, we've got a, a subgroup working on on pedestrians, which is a much neglected area, and we're lobbying for better footpaths and better traffic management to to reduce pedestrian accidents and deaths. So that's the kind of stuff we do. Coming up to the council elections, we'll hold a forum of. Uh, and invite council candidates in, in Brunswick, in the south ward of Moreland, to um, to join us. That's the nature of our work. Just wondering what
0: the make-up of people is in Brunswick now, because it was a, a very diverse ethnically number of people. Is it still because the people who don't speak English or don't have access to a computer are not able to take part in the survey?
7: Absolutely, and that's one of the problems of doing a a survey during a, a COVID stay at home period. We thought of, uh, of putting out a paper survey, but really people may have panicked at paper appearing in, the, in their letterboxes and now would they have got it back to us? So so paper surveys weren't really a possibility. And so we, it is a restricted, I guess, database of, of people who speak English and can, can use a computer, as I said. Going back to the other part of your question, Yes, Brunswick has changed, but it's still it's still very diverse. But it's um, I, I think over the uh, recent years it's become diverse in in a different way. There's still among the older generation or those first generation migrants still um, living around us. There's also newer immigrants, there's people from from Asian countries. There's lots. There's still a lot of students in shared houses. There's a lot of rental accommodation. And and those people are are mixed in with, I guess, a more well-to-do and, in some ways, middle-class group who who move into the suburb.
0: What's the breakdown of the 189
7: people who responded? We didn't... Actually, that's one of the flaws in the survey. We probably didn't connect uh, enough of their demographics, but we did ask them uh, some demographic uh, questions, which I'm just... Grabbing, There was a big group of working people among them. People who were working at home d- during the survey period was uh, about 65%. There was obviously also a group of maybe older and or, or less, uh, less healthy people because we asked people uh, if they were particularly at risk from COVID-19 and 30, 31% people said yes. So those were the types of demographic questions we asked. We asked about, about if people were working less hours or unemployed as a result of COVID, and about 21% of people said yes to one or one, one of those questions. About 20% of the people who answered it had their kids at home during the day, but did ask age or gender or, or questions of that nature? Almost all the people who answered lived in Brunswick, There were just a, a few who, single-digit number of those who worked or went to school here.
0: Did you find that the positives outnumbered the negatives?
7: No, not at all. The first question we asked, which, as I said, the questions were mainly open-ended, people could say whatever they like, was on the major impacts. And with that first question that people saw, you have to say that most of them, uh, the majority of them were negative. We we actually went through and categorised them, and two-thirds answering that question described what were clearly negative impacts, about a quarter were a mixture of positive or negative or couldn't really be clearly ca- classified, 10% described things that were positive. So, yeah, the, for most people, the experience was really a, a negative one. But people did also then go on to answer a question about what were the positives and what they said there was very interesting. People, Most people did see positive things about the experience as well as the negatives.
0: Were the negative thoughts more financial or was it more they couldn't sort of take part in social things and support the local community? Is that some of the reasons why they found it negative?
7: I think that's the interesting thing. Even the people who had lost work or the people who were unemployed as a result of the stay-at-home, when asked to describe the negatives, described things that were social. They talked about not being able to go out to restaurants or theatre shows or music or cafes. That was the most common category when we went through and categorised their responses. So in a way it showed a lifestyle of people around here where a lot of people do go out a lot and it's a big part of their lives. The next most common thing people mentioned was lack of exercise, even though when we later asked people specifically about exercise, some people were exercising more, but A slightly bigger group were exercising less. And then there were all the social issues, not seeing their families, not seeing their friends. Some mental health issues were mentioned. Difficulties of working at home, difficulties of having kids at home, and a whole range of of quite diverse issues were brought up.
0: Were there many people who were concerned that remote schooling wasn't working?
7: I don't know if it... It wasn't working. The kind of thing that people talked about was just being hard to work at home. Just looking at the, the major impacts, one person said the major impact was more time with my kids, less time to myself, total annihilation of work-life boundaries. Some people said it was hard for their kids, having two small kids in a small house. In a small house, we make use of the area we live in a lot. We go to the pool, library and especially playgrounds and it gets claustrophobic without these. One person did say, feeling like it's impossible to replicate the great job our teachers do. And someone else commented that the kids were missing out on socialising and on their team sport and on their cultural activities.
0: Well, talking about the positives, Nancy, you can't go past happy dogs around our area. There have been dogs and more dogs and more dogs. And I'm sure they're getting more than one walk a day. Yes, and...
7: We actually end end up coming through the results and counting the mentions of dogs. So out of the 189, uh, there were, I think, 10 mentions of dogs, dogs being happy and dogs being walked more and so on and so forth. And you can see it in the streets and and down at the -the off-the-leash dog park. It's busier than ever. Yeah, so the dogs are happy. The positives had more in common with each other. There was more agreement about the positives than there was about the overall impacts and the negatives.
0: There must be a lot of people who spent an inordinate amount of time travelling to and from work, and that was wiped out for those months.
7: Yes, that's one of the things that did come up. And in fact, 8% of our people commented specifically on the fact that they had no commute time, and that was a good thing. And people, you know, there were people who were spending two hours a day travelling to... Bob was quite far away, and a number of people a small a small percentage but a number of people said that it was a positive to work, to be working from home, and those people will probably be lobbying to do more working at home in the future. but I think the overall common response to that question was what people loved was generally just slowing down of their lives and having less stress and just Being more relaxed and that giving them time to do other things. Some of the comments, more relaxed as I'm more flexible. More hours to work in as I don't need to contend with getting to and from work. Not having to take kids to school and then commute to the CBD for work. Less rushing around in the morning. Wearing comfy clothes at home, not office wear. And someone says, I'm actually working more efficiently and more focused than at work no commuting up to two hours a day, each, each way to work is terrific. I, get, I use this time to get urgent work done. And another person says, can finally get to sleep Thursday to Sunday with no nightclubs or hotels open, no drunks and no parties around. Mm. Those are some of the kinds of comments that, that people made. So 40% of people commented on having more time to themselves or on the general slowing down of their lives. People talked a lot about community around um, just over 20% of the people who answered the survey commented about people around them being more friendly and about people being neighbourly and a a building of a sense of community. And there were some quite specific answers where, you know, one group, everyone had set up WhatsApp community uh, communication thing and uh, in another street, someone who, uh, who was a chef and was out of work because of the... The the shutdown was cooking for people in the street who were still working, you know, and they were buying meals from her. So there are all sorts of little community things. Another street, which already had a community network, around their back lane, two streets of people, and they apparently are writing a diary of the COVID shutdown period. Fantastic stuff coming out about communities.
0: Did you have any respondents say that they went out and bought bikes
7: for the family? Not specifically that they bought bikes, but people talked a bit about um, – and, and we had a whole section which we should talk about, about the, uh, the decrease in traffic, where we asked people specifically about that. And in, in response to that, people said that they, people said that they were much ha- more comfortable riding themselves, or they were much more comfortable taking their kids out on the, on the roads.
0: Talk more about the decrease in traffic, and that's impact.
7: So we asked people a question. We said, there's been a big decrease in traffic. How has this affected you? Maybe a fifth of the people kind of really misinterpreted the question and said, well, I don't drive, so it didn't affect me, (laughs) which I think was a bit missing the point. But the rest of the people were overwhelmingly enthusiastic about the decrease in traffic to the extent where we, we created in our analysis a special tag for enthusiastic where people have put... You know, rows of exclamation marks and they said things like amazing and fantastic and superb and brilliant, and lots of capital letters. <laughs> and they were really keen on not having any traffic in their roads. And the reasons for this uh, this varied. As I just said, people were more comfortable going out; they thought they were a lot safer on the roads. But apart from that, they loved having less noise. The walkers loved it; they found it easier to cross the roads. People specifically said it was better for bike riding. They liked the, the clear skies and the lack of pollution. People said they could hear birds and that they could see more birds. And the car drivers liked it as well because they could they could um, get around more um, more easily. So that was a sort of overwhelming plus for not having lots of cars and lots of rat running cars going up and down, going up and down the streets.
0: Did people talk about whether they lived in a flat or an apartment or a house which allowed them to have a little veggie garden?
7: Not in relation specifically to the type of house, but one of the, uh, one of the questions, we did actually have one question where we listed activity and said, are you doing more of these activities, are you doing less? And that gave us a bit of, I guess, um, Specific information uh, where we'd sort of set the issue and asked people to comment on it, rather than a very open-ended, open-ended question. And almost 50% of people said they were doing more gardening. So gardening was a uh, was a big winner in the activities people were doing more of. And home cooking. Uh, yeah, gardening. The thing we hadn't sort of thought of when we drew up the survey, and maybe it was obvious, was that it was people talking more. On video on video calls, and almost eighty percent of people who answered were talking or meeting by video more than before. And then in the other questions, we can see that people are talking to family, they're talking to friends, and some people are saying they're more in contact with their families than they are out of the shutdown times. And that's one of the good things about it that they worked out how to all get on a group family chat or how to talk to their, their relatives in Adelaide and they'll probably keep doing that afterwards. Talking by video was one of the big things that people were doing more. Cooking at home, yes, 70% of people were doing more cooking at home. Walking for exercise, 51% doing that more. Watching TV and video, talking to neighbours, shopping locally. There were some issues where people were split, Where. Quite a substantial group were doing it more and quite a substantial group doing it less. And one, one of those was bike riding. So 17% of people were doing more bike riding, but 20% of people, probably including me, were doing less because And that, uh, comments uh, there were from people who were missing their daily bike commute into the city and out or to work and back. So that was their daily exercise.
0: Were there any big surprises in the results of this survey?
7: I think one of the big surprises was we asked the question at the end about people's concerns for the future. People were very concerned about what will happen to Brunswick in the future. Some of their views were quite grim. They were, uh, you know, worried that the main streets, Sydney Road, for example, that the, all of the smaller, more interesting shops and cafes and restaurants would close down and we'd just be left with, you know, with the big supermarkets the big hardware chain, that local businesses would collapse. And people talked about, you know, needing to support their local businesses because of that. So that was a bit of a surprise to the extent to which people commented on that. People were concerned about poverty. And as I said, the, there were a number of people who, who saw themselves possibly working from home or in the, the future. Would, will be a big change in many ways. What will you do with the results? We're going on radio wherever we can. <laughs> we got a couple of minutes on the ABC when we first it out. Um, we actually, as a result of putting out this survey, we uh, circulated to the councillors and the CEO, and the CEO contacted us and asked to have a chat about it. So we presented the results to the CEO, and we hope that she'll take on board some of the issues that, that we've raised. After we've done it, we realise it's actually an interesting historic document. going to send it round to people like public records and the various libraries and archives. And the the museum, I think, is doing some work um, collecting data on the stay-at-home period. So we're going to send it to the museum as well.
0: Are you thinking about a follow-up survey once people get back to some sort of
7: normal lives? Not not at present, but it would be interesting to go back and ask people about some of these questions. I don't know if we'd be able to replicate the results, though, because... Like I said at the start, people were really, clearly, really keen to write down a lot of these things and some of them wrote much more lengthy answers than we'd we'd expected and were were much more, uh, yeah, were quite eloquent in their responses. One here in front of me, when we asked people to look in the future, someone said, I hope people will remain kinder to and more thoughtful of each other and more patient. I hope we will continue to shop and eat more locally, although less consumption in general would be good to to sustain. I hope people will feel grateful for what they have and what's really important, our health and the roof over our head and the minimum income to maintain these. So that's an example of, I think, quite a a thoughtful comment. Others talking about maybe we can use the experience to build on... Someone said that the experience will provide a rich resource of experience and knowledge to build future activism and options for change.
0: It was a huge undertaking, Nancy. It must have consumed many hours to work it all out in the beginning and then work out the answers that you've got?
7: Well, simpler to work it out in the beginning and we wanted to get that quickly. We really just spent two or three days designing and we just wanted to get it out there before things opened up again because if you ask these questions now already people will have kind of forgotten what it was like and drifted back to how they were before and so I think that was the right thing to do. started so quite quickly which is why we, there's probably a few things we should have asked about we didn't. We gave people space to write what we thought would be quicker answers. And as I said, they were more expressive than we we expected. So it did take a couple of weeks of hard work to look at all those responses. And in our report, it mainly consists of the quotations uh, to try and give sense of what people were saying, to try and give some samples of what people were saying. That was quite a lot of work to do.
0: Nancy, you said 189. If you were 190, how would you have filled out this survey?
7: Yeah, how would I have filled out the survey? Well, I think I'm in the sort of small category of people who've been through a number of circumstances, lucky enough not to have a really negative experience of staying at home because we have a garden which was in need of attention. Uh, we have plenty of food. We're home during the day anyway, so it's not a huge change. We had an elderly relative in the country who we were obliged to go and visit every two or three weeks, and so we did have a a legal reason to leave the city and and get get out and about. So we weren't locked inside a small flat for six weeks. So we were able to, you know, enjoy all the things that people talked about, so staying at home and cooking and kind of (laughs) catching up on, watching films we were meant to watch for ages and so on.
0: But surely there's a message for governments around Australia for when they might think of more social isol- isolation of people that there are certain people in the community who are very fearful of social isolation long term.
7: Yes, and it clearly was very hard for some people one of the things I didn't mention earlier was if we looked at the, the people who were homeless families, they weren't complaining about being obviously about being lonely, they weren't complaining about being bored or feeling isolated or anxious or any other kind of emotional or mental health things. Those were the impacts at the, at the top of their mind. But there was a whole other group of people who were feeling isolated, were feeling lonely, were stressed because and anxious because of that and were and and some were worried about getting sick. Just to finish, Nancy, is there
0: any other comments?
7: You talked about messages to government. I think the message about traffic management, people loving quieter streets, about planning for quiet streets is a long-term message. Uh, Related to that, people love their open space now. People are walking more. People are walking to parks. People are, are walking down to the Merry Creek. Obviously, that's really put a, a highlight on what's happening around here with growing densification. Anyway, where where we just need a lot more open space and park uh, and parklands, and they need to be um, to be maintained and, and uh, beautified.
0: I've been speaking with Nancy Atkin from the Brunswick Residents Network.
3: 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity
6: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au
0: Next to Western Sahara it appears that the people are coping well with isolation and social distancing but a concern that the virus could be transported from Morocco, especially because in Western Sahara they lack diagnostic tools for most diseases in hospitals and face the need to go to Morocco for treatment. Likewise, in the refugee camps in Western Algeria, early isolation was in place. But there are concerns for other Western Saharans, the prisoners in jails in Morocco. I asked Kate Lewis, from Australia Western Sahara Association to comment on this important issue.
5: Well, yes, there are many of these prisoners and they are living in very poor conditions and as everybody knows all around the world, they are not good conditions for uh, protecting people against infection. The request is that these prisoners would be released or given... um, Safer conditions, and it's particularly unjust because many of the Moroccan prisoners have actually been released, but none of the people released are Sahrawis. Yeah.
0: And are these in jails in Morocco or some of them in yes. Western Sahara?
5: Oh, uh, no, I think the, the Moroccan ones would be all in, in Morocco. The Moroccan people have been released. Too sure, but I'm pretty sure that the. Group. Well, there are two groups that are particularly concerned. One is the Musique the group, who have been there since the mass protest in 2010. So they've been there 10 years now already. Although they're, I don't know how, where that they, when their sentences dated from, because they didn't actually get sentenced for a few years after that. Most of them are well over 10 years sentences. 25 years, 30 years and some of them for life. So that's one group who living in very poor conditions all around Morocco. They split them up so they couldn't meet with each other and they'd been doing while they were awaiting trial. And then the other group is called the student group and these are young people who were arrested in Agadir much more recently. Maybe 2017 they're all young and they've also been given quite long sentences for simply supporting their country's call for independence and and the referendum and so on so yes I mean like a 20 year old student getting 10 year sentences you know they're losing so many good years of their life and it's really very uh, upsetting and, and also that the charges that, uh, that they were facing are mostly completely trumped up charges. So nothing to do with any any crime. The main thing is that they were supporting Western Sahara. There's a big campaign to try and get those people released.
0: Does Morocco also have prisons in Western Sahara?
5: Oh yes, there's a there's a prison in, in Al and one in Dakhla don't think there's one in Samara. Oh, yes, a lot of old oh, men spend years. So how do we use in those prisons too? But uh, these, these longer-term sentences, They it's just part of adding extra pain to the families to place the prisoners oh, so far away from home so that it, it's either costly or, or quite impossible for the families to visit them. So I think it's just for that reason they take them to these prisons in Morocco itself.
0: One death sadly, Kate, not from the virus, but after a long battle against cancer, and the tributes to him have echoed the respect and sadness felt by his people.
5: Indeed, he was uh, very well loved and and hadad, and very well known as well, especially among the supporters of Western Sahara, because he travelled so widely around the world being the coordinator between the Sahrawi government and the Minoso. So every time uh, the question came up in the United Nations, he would be there. If it came up in the European Union, and of course he was one of the ones who spearheaded this move to take cases to the European court over the plunder of the natural resources of Western Sahara you know he would be there he would be talking all the time with people in all of these different settings in Geneva in Addis Ababa whatever so he became well known to people around the world uh, but also very well loved by the the at home as well
0: Was he trained as a lawyer?
5: Actually not quite sure of that he would have been a student during the beginnings of this struggle because, um, you know, he would have been like 20 or something in 1975. I think he completed his studies before he took part in the uh, actual war, but was there from the, from the start. I'm not quite sure what the studies were, but certainly over the course of time he's... Language, his English was extremely good and, and many la- languages so could be that he studied language I don't know
0: In the early years did the Moroccans ever get their hands on him?
5: I'm sorry, I don't know that question either I don't know maybe something happened but there's not been a lot of about those early days in his life we maybe need to find out more about that Yes.
7: he'll
0: be a hard act to follow certainly
5: Yes, indeed, it will be a hard act to follow because uh, he was everything that a good diplomat should be. He was very charming and very intelligent, but also you could tell that he felt things from the heart and he really uh, was very sincere in everything that he wanted to do. I should have thought it was quite convincing. It's probably due... To his schools, and partly, I mean, that although this Hadawi cause has been 40 years without reaching a resolution, if they hadn't had diplomats like Haddad uh, pleading the cause, they would have been annihilated by the Moroccans 20 or 40 years ago. So I think uh, you know that it it can look as if their diplomacy isn't successful, but it's I often think it's like an arm wrestle, and the arm goes down this way sometimes and back the other way sometimes, but it never actually, there's not really ever a a winner. It just stays in this kind of stalemate. But if there wasn't any resistance, then it would be over in a flash. And so I think the Sahara resistance is a lot more successful than it sometimes appears.
0: I would imagine there would have been a big funeral, but would that be something that the Moroccans would allow?
5: It wouldn't be in, in the occupied Territory. It would it would have been in the camps. He was based out of the camps, um, Haddad, and, and probably they took his body home to be buried there. He was in hospital in Madrid uh, at the end of his life. Yes, he probably was repatriated to be buried uh, in Western Sahara.
0: Disturbing news from the UN, what's been described as a, a scandalous appointment by the President of the General yeah. Assembly.
5: Human Rights Council operates in Geneva. All the human rights work is done in Geneva. Uh, t- to do with the, uh, the work of the Human Rights Council in reforming the treaties of, of human rights, Apparently, a lot of work has already been done on most of the actual nitty-gritty work on the reform has been done, but writing of the final report needed two people and a, um, a brilliant Swiss diplomat, who seems to be extremely well-suited for the job, and to be paired with the Moroccan ambassador, Omar Hilali. Although apparently this tandem have worked well before, to us, it was a complete appointment of the wrong man for the job, and not at all a right man for the job.
0: Just the fact that they've chosen someone from an occupying power to have that position, it sort of smacks of whatever, doesn't
5: it? Completely inappropriate that a country that is occupying another country, which is right against international law, that, that, that any any Moroccan should be in, uh, given a position of telling other countries how to behave in human rights does sound very strange. There have also been complaints about the uh, way in which they have extracted all those uh, so-called confessions by the Gede Musique group that I mentioned earlier. They were all extracted under torture. They weren't even able to see the Charges that they were being accused of, they were blindfolded and told to sign or or make their mark without reading the the charges. So that was completely improper, and those investigations have not been followed up in the way that they would be obliged to do. The other thing is that this particular man, Omar Hilali, has got a track record of corruption and being used uh, specifically against the Sahrawis, uh, in that respect, he personally is quite unsuited to this sort of work. I would have thought
0: so this is totally a political appointment
5: I suppose so and and, and of course the the all well, the Moroccans will have worked very hard. they will have used those carefully built up contacts in these different un buildings um, and, and bodies to to get appointed because as soon as they get a position like that. Then it's all over their papers about how wonderful Morocco is and how it's uh, correcting its human rights reputation because it's um, favouring human rights, supporting the reform of uh, the the, uh, treaties and so on. And the fact that they will never actually implement any of these things can be overlooked. They just like to trumpet it abroad that they're reforming themselves. And, you know, because he's unsuited and because uh, he will be making as much mileage out of it as he can, or the Moroccan machine will be making as much out of it as they can, a consortium of different non-governmental organizations working from Geneva with, the, at the head, the American Association of Tourists, put uh, all these others brought in, including the Australia Western Sahara Association, <coughs> be sending an, a letter of protest, and it's actually going to be an open letter, so anybody can see it. And maybe we will be publishing it on the ORSA website, AU. I'm just waiting to have the final version uh, agreed by everybody. I don't think it's going to change a lot, but... Um, it, it does instance some of these points that I've just been making.
0: I would imagine that there's a few countries in that region of Northern Africa which wouldn't be too pleased about the appointment either.
5: Yes, I think, I think that's, that's no doubt true. And, um, because, it, I mean, we're always taking the position of the Sahadawis who get a very rough trot at the hands of the Moroccans, but... It's also true that plenty of Moroccans get badly treated by their own judicial system and anybody there who wants to do what the Saharais are doing and demonstrate and ask for, appeal for change in some way, to ask for more transparency, to ask for a voice, to ask for independence, they are also imprisoned and, and, and treated very badly, so it's, it's a country that has got a, a very bad reputation when looked at against other countries by organisations, uh, human rights organisations around the world. It tends to come out as one of the worst of the worst.
0: You've spoken a couple of times about Kola, who last year resigned as the personal representative of the Secretary-General of the UN for Western Sahara, there's still not been a replacement for
6: him.
5: It hasn't and um, that is another co- co- uh, cause for concern. The Security Council uh, did discuss the issue of Western Sahara this month in April like six months before uh, the mandate of Minoso becomes due but uh, nothing was said about uh, making a new appointment so that is a worry because that is the the vehicle through which a, a peaceful peaceful process should be negotiated and if the Hulloies are getting more and more desperate about this then many of them would like to go back to war since the peaceful method doesn't seem to be working
0: just wondering Kate about the lockdown i'm sure that the people in the camps are in lockdown how does that impact on the goods that come in from overseas to keep them alive? Oh, well,
5: I mean, uh, hopefully they, they uh, observe the measures that any of us are doing that of cleaning and decontaminating anything, sanitising whatever comes. Once it's there, I mean, since there has been no COVID in the camps, one hopes that there isn't any lurking there from visitors, because they do have visitors from overseas and in fact, just before the clampdown, there was a, a youth, an international youth conference and they had to sort of hurriedly get all those people to go home so that they could close each of the camps from each other and also from the nearby town of Tindus in southwest Algeria, which would normally be the main source of Daily needs for for people. Uh, there are shops in Western Sahara, but in, so in the camps, but they would be uh, most getting their supplies from Hindus. However, there's a good story about that because one um, person that I got in touch with to see how things were going told me about this little project that one of them has. is called Talib Brahim al Khalil, and he is a desert agriculture engineer. He is trying to produce food locally to meet their needs in, in small little projects like a family a vegetable patch, like any of us might do. And I have to say, a lot of our, my friends, including myself, are also trying to grow vegetables as part of a, a, a sort of lockdown activity. So it's quite nice to think of people in the camps doing the same thing.
0: You think, though,
5: of the lack of water? Oh, yes, well, yes, there is a, a, a lack of water, and it has the disadvantage the, the water that there is is artesian water, and so it's quite saline, and it can be difficult to get the right kind of species and plant that will withstand the salt. But there's a, 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 a fair bit of knowledge of growing in. Saline soils and with saline water, I think, around the world, if they can just bring that knowledge to bear, they, they should be able to grow. I mean, years ago there was a um, a project started by the British NGO called War on Want to grow food in in the Saharawi camps. They all each village grew uh, had a little garden. They would put a wall around it to protect it from the harsh winds that come and the sandstorms and all that. They were going quite well, but the government wasn't terribly happy about it because they thought it was the wrong symbolism for them to be putting down roots. They wanted always to appear that the camps were temporary. They were just waiting for their opportunity to return to their proper country. So it didn't get a lot of support from the government, but it it was quite a successful project.
0: Finally, Kate, when you think of what the people have gone through over many, many decades, this is just one more challenge for them.
5: That's right, exactly. And uh, isolation is not really something that is new to them at all, although they are very sociable and they are very used to being able to meet together and sit down and, of course, in their culture, have their tea and chat and talk and greet each other with very uh, generous hugs and, and kisses and so on. So to have to keep one's distance in that way must be quite harsh for them as it is, again, for people all around the world.
0: Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Jan. And that was an update on the situation in Western Sahara from Kate Lewis, a member of the Australian Western Sahara Association.
6: Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click to place your orders or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter.
0: How often have we heard politicians and others say, once we get back to normal, meaning when the COVID-19 crisis is over, but many more others say we don't want to return to normal and peace activist Brian Terrell, the co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence in the US, is looking back over 50 years to 1969, when Jesuit priest and war resister Daniel Berrigan, writing from his federal prison cell, diagnosed normalcy as a wasting disease, and labelled it an obstacle to peace. When I spoke with Brian at the weekend at his farm in Iowa, I asked him to take up that notion of normalcy and its inherent dangers.
8: It came to mind because hearing several people talking about all the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic and some people calling for returning to normal and what that means. And other people, I think it was first uh, John Pilger that, that I read, where he said that you know 24,600 people die every day from, from unnecessary starvation. 3,000 children die every day from malaria. 10,000 people die every day because they're denied publicly funded health care. Going on about the, the children dying and starving to death in Yemen, that's the normal. That's what normal has been. And uh, the climate activist, the young woman, Greta Thunberg, saying, you know, normal is a crisis. So it made me think back. Daniel Berrigan is a man who had uh, much influence in my life. He died just a few years ago. He's a Jesuit priest who had uh, spent his life resisting war and oppression. I met him in 1975 when I was 19 years old, which is very, very fortunate meeting. But a few years before that, 1969, Dan was in prison because he had taken part with some friends Uh, Going into a draft board, and these days before computers, there weren't any backups to take people against their will into the U.S. military. They just had paper files, had the records. At the time, there were hundreds of thousands of, of young American men involuntarily in the U.S. military fighting a war in Vietnam. There were lots of marches and lots of protests and politicians stumping and a lot of voting and the war just kept going on so so these friends took direct action and went into a uh, draft board and took the papers thousands of files and took them out into the parking lot of the Knights of Columbus building where the, there was housing the draft board in Catonsville, Maryland and they it was homemade napalm made from a special forces handbook recipe they took these papers and they burned them in the in the parking lot Our Dan said pardoned, friends, for this fracture of good order, burning paper, because burning children is intolerable. Anyway, when he was in prison, he wrote, reflecting on, on his action and reflecting on, on uh, what was going on in the world, she, she wrote this, I think of the good, decent, peace-loving people I have known by the thousands, and I wonder how many of them are so afflicted with a wasting disease of normalcy that even as they declare for peace, their hands reach out with an instinctive spasm in the direction of their loved ones, the direction of their comforts, their home, their security, their income, their future, their plans, that 25-year plan of family growth and unity, 50-year plan of decent life and honorable natural demise, that of course let us have peace, but at the same time, let us have normalcy, let us lose nothing Let our lives stand intact at all costs. Our hopes must march on schedule.
0: What were the consequences for Daniel for doing that? Well, in that case, it was some, I think, four years in prison. All that went along with
8: that. But he identified this disease of normalcy, that we want peace. We want the poor to be fed. We want the sick to be cared for. But over that is the idea that we we still want a normal life. I fully understand that and believe that Dan did too. But the normalcy, I was thinking about this with this COVID epidemic, normalcy is disease as well. And it's deadly because we can't have normal. If normal seems good for some of us, it's because we are among the very, very privileged few for all the terrible things going on in the world. And uh, people speak about that too, about our president, Donald Trump. To be kind to the man, he's not a normal president, and we long for normalcy, and the Democrats put up a candidate, but the status quo, the normal that, that's been going on for many decades or the entire history of the United States is not a model for us to be to be clinging to. We need something other than normal, and if we go through this, if we survive the epidemic, which of course we will, and if we survive the Trump presidency, which is less likely, but Still, I think we will. If what we end up with in both cases is a return to normal, very frightening prospect, we have an opportunity for something else, for something better. And I see signs of hope in the protests in the streets in the United States and around the world and the idea that we can even begin to talk about something, some way that we can keep our streets safe with something other than armed and militarized police. And I'm thinking that, that that conversation must necessarily expand if we were coming to realize that for the majority of people, having a militarized police force actually makes us less safe in our homes. Uh, no-knock warrants, the horrible thing that happened in, in uh, Kentucky just a few weeks ago where uh, a young woman was killed by police who were knocking down her door in the middle of the night, an EMT worker who was who is trying to get some rest. That that has to be extended to our foreign policy as well. I, I hear people talk about the police here. Many of our police departments, even in small towns, have things like grenade launchers and armored cars and tanks, rocket launchers. Police forces have these. Assault weapons, uh, the, the, the riot equipment. In some cities, the police actually wear camouflage uniforms like like a military occupational army. And I hear good people say we shouldn't have that on our streets. We should not have a military occupation of Seattle, Minneapolis,
3: of Atlanta,
8: of Washington, D.C. And we have to realize that we are also imposing that these same conditions on people, almost exclusively people of color, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria in Libya we are that, that these the same changes that we're rightfully demanding being made here at home we need to make the same demands for our brothers and sisters who under US military occupation in various places around the world
0: can you understand how racism has got to the stage where it is now particularly in the United States with the state apparatus Arming themselves against their own people.
8: Well, it's a very, very long history. Its country was based on genocide of the native people, and its economy built from the beginning on chattel slavery and then and other sorts of slavery and oppression later. And it's not new with Donald Trump. Remember that the Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter movement began in Ferguson with Michael Brown's murder. Uh, at a time when we had a uh, black president, President Barack Obama, and we had a black attorney general, I think things, things have gotten much worse. I, I think the rhetoric out of the White House these last few years has been, has exasperated it. But on the other hand, we're having a discussion now that we couldn't have if we had, a again, a normal president who would be able to speak about and avoid the whole aspect of racism, what racism means. Uh, as Barack Obama was, I think, able to deflect the discussion, and with the international part of it, I think of, of the uh, during the Obama administration, there were thousands. You know, he was took the uh, armed drone program that, that, that George Bush started and increased it exponentially. Thousands of people killed by U.S. drone strikes in the Middle East and in Africa and South Asia. Thousands. Uh, most of them, we don't know their names and most of them were not specifically targeted, but they were just in in the wrong place at the wrong time. We know of only two white people who were killed, and one was an American and one was an Italian by drone strikes who both happened to be hostages of the Taliban and were killed while some Taliban leaders were, were being targeted. And both those men got direct apologies of the family by, by the President of the United States, Barack Obama, and both those men's families got quite generous financial support after the, the, the deaths of their family members. Thousands of people of color were killed without being named, without having, uh, without any compensation, without without any apology, and this is what was happening. With the, it was happening in the streets of the United States, it was happening in the in um, in the Kush Mountains, it was happening in this in Kandahar, happening in Pakistan, uh, and in Chicago, and in, in Minnesota, and in many cities around the United States, in El Paso, Texas, and in a Black administration, where the rhetoric was never aimed at fanning the flames of racism. Well, this is what I mean by, by, by "normal" is, is normal was always bad. It was just much, much easier for people not directly affected by it, especially for white people of privilege in the United States, not to realize this is going on and not to see the racism for what it is and for it always has been. I am not celebrating Donald Trump whatsoever, but I think that we have uh, have with him kind of a post Orwellian time, if you know what I mean. We're not talking euphemisms. We can talk about, you know, for example, last week, Mr. Trump referred to the attack on peaceful protesters outside the White House in Lafayette Square so that he could have his Bible photo op in front of St. John's Episcopal Church on the other side of Lafayette Park from the White House. And he issued a tweet thanking the police and the National Guard and the SS, which he we uh, think we met the, the Secret Service, but for cleaning the park of the easily made away with the anarchists and anti-fascists and protesters, I don't think that that was really a mistake. Or if it is, it's the mistake, mistake of an idiot savant. It was telling a certain truth. Of The SS, of course, the, you know, the paramilitary uh, foot soldiers of the Nazi Party during you know, before and during World War II and in the, in the Nazi era, who were also made pretty quick work of doing away with anti-fascists and and other people that, that that if people in the peace and civil rights movement were to speak about that action and call those police officers who carried it out the SS, we would be accused of using you know divisive and and prejudicial rhetoric, and it would be seen as very irresponsible, and we would be called out for it. But to have the president of the United States say that it, it gives the situation a. a a bit more clarity, and I, I think as a people, we are it's easier for us to. Um, I think we can to respond to it better because the language being used is the language of fascism.
0: I've been speaking with Brian Terrell, a co coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and next week we'll hear part two of that interview with Brian. And just a reminder that June is appealed month for 3CR that website is 3cr.org.au or you can phone the office during office hours on 9 and I do hope that you can contribute or you can
4: Hi, it's Ronny Kareni here from the Voice of Respectful program I joined the 3CR Community Radio back in late 2009 as a volunteer, a programmer and also a staff member and I must say that Tricia Community Radio is the only community station that has been able to bring the voices from diverse community backgrounds and various campaign groups, and for those people to be able to tell their own stories. And that is unique. You can't find that in any other stations or in mainstream media. For me, as a West Papuan, to be able to tell my own story and to give an update, that is special. It's important to support Tricia Community Radio this time when everything is in uncertainty. Much love to our Tricia Community Radio staff and volunteers for their tireless work in keeping the station going. Thank you. 3CR, your station
0: in struggle and solidarity.
6: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au.
0: Indonesia has been charged with having its own version of Black Lives Matter protests by Papuans last August. Then Papuans took part in protests across at least 30 cities in Indonesia in response to a racist attack by Indonesian militants and army officers on a West Papuan student dorm in Surabaya on the 18th of August. Videos showed some Indonesian soldiers repeatedly banging on the dormitory gate while shouting words such as monkeys and pork eaters. Eating pork is an insult to the predominantly Muslim country, but ethnic Papuans, predominantly Christians, eat pork with various recipes, including the Melanesian-style stone-burning method. Police shot Teargun into the dormitory and arrested dozens of Papuan students. Now, seven of those anti-racist activists are in jail east in Kalimantan, facing between five and 17 years in jail. I spoke with activist Ronnie Karini and ask him where Balik Papan is and who the Balik Papan 7 are. I'm going to ask you first, Roddy, where is Balik Papan and who are the Balik Papan 7?
4: The, the Spapworth self Determination Movement. So they are now being charged under treason for organising anti racism protests. And so the leader, Bukta Tabuni, has been prosecuted for 17 years and he's also the, he's in the legislative council of the West Papua Leadership Team or Leadership Council, the ULMWP or United Liberation Movement for West Papua. And so he's a high profile person. So they have already now demanded him to spend 17 years. The chairman of the Civil Resistance Group, KNPB is Agus Kosai. He's been prosecuted for 15 years, and two of the student leaders from the universities in West Papua have been prosecuted for 10 years, and then the students, two other students, have been prosecuted for five years, respectively. And so pretty much on Wednesday, we'll be hearing the final verdict of this prosecution. And so now there is a lot of rally behind the Bali Papua 7 to call for their immediate and unconditional release, as well as the law that they are being charged under is a racist approach that the government is putting on them. And so these are our West Papua anti-racism victims, but also activists that is now we're calling for their release.
0: What is known about their
4: health? Since they've been taken to Bali, um, there's very limited access for food, as well as medical access and even for families to visit, given the, the proximity and it's away from West Papua. The Papuans have rallied to support the, the immediate families of these seven political prisoners, we, we call them, in order for them to be able to have that access so they are the ones that can be able to support the seven Balikpapan prisoners and to be able to help them in terms of medical needs or food And other necessity that yeah they needed. So this is also we are appealing as well at the same time to the wider support network around to also yeah make contact and support. Um, I'm happy to um, put my name on it and then yeah to liaise with the families because then they are the ones that will be able to support the seven prisoners.
0: What legal representatives do they have?
4: Well, they have the West Papuan Legal uh, Coalition of um, Legal Team. But at the end of the day, the legal team have appealed and put their case forward based on the facts that happened on the ground at the time. However, given that now they have been charged under a different set of law, which is the uh, treason charges, everything seems to be just the legal team trying to argue the case of the seven Balipapan uh, prisoners, um, it's not the same with the law that now is being imposed on. And so this has created a legal debate now. Whatever is going to happen in the next couple of days, between now and Wednesday, is that this matter will be taken further, appealed to, um, to the higher court hearing, not the district court. Uh, and if this has not settled, then... This is a matter of now taking it into the international case, legal case, to look into these seven uh, political prisoners.
0: Already international human rights people are supporting the seven? Yes. So far, the
4: Amnesty Indonesia has come out strongly in condemning um, the charges that laid, and even Amnesty Indonesia has tried to organise forums, online forums, and they've been zoom bombing with their uh, trolls and propaganda and um, even a lot of the Papuan advocates have been under intimidation, lots of phone calls to threaten them so this is a dire situation where Amnesty Indonesia is also calling for other NGOs and civil society groups. The churches coalition in West Papua has come out and made a very strong statement. Um, The Papuan customary council and even um, the Pacific Conference of Churches have also joined in a statement to condemn and call for the immediate release of the Pali Papan 7. And so this is a matter now to really regionalize this issue. And we are seeing on the social media, even within Indonesia, university students have come out and organized webinars and have really taken on the Black Lives Meta uh, movement in the U.S., but also looking in the context of within Indonesia, the Papuan Live Meta as well, um, in terms of the systemic racism imposing on the Papuans. So now we are seeing more students in the University of Indonesia. There's another university in called Lampung, And even in West Papua, um, two main universities, Chandrawasi University students, uh, are organizing webinars. So... This is generating new discussions around the issue of racism, but specifically looking at the systemic racism within the the law and also the discrimination against the Papuan. So within the region as well, we're seeing through the campaign um, groups and in the Pacific, uh, we bleed black and red movement that is um, based in the Pacific, we're seeing a lot of young Pacific Islanders coming out in solidarity messages in calling for the release of the seven prisoners. um, Now, basically, they are calling for their release.
0: There was a webinar in Australia last evening, or yesterday afternoon. You were part of that. Who else was part of that?
4: The webinar was organised by the co-convened by the Indigenous Peoples League. The chairman, Len Cooper, was uh, one of the... Um, we also have General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches, James Bagwan in Fiji, also presented and giving a case from the Interfaith Joint Statement on the Bali Papuan 7. We also have a West Papuan representative within the Provincial Government legislation, le- Legislature. He also gave um, uh, his view and statements on how within uh, the the West Papua Representative Council, also making and pleading the case of the Balikpapan 7 to the provincial government and also echoing that to the central government. We have Veronica, Indonesian human rights lawyer, moderating the conversation and also bringing in some of the human rights cases that have not been dealt with um, over the Past two years, within th- 2018 and up to mm-hmm. present day, and so reflecting on that, and myself gave a bit of a call out of in terms of solidarity that goes beyond just seven political prisoners, but also the role of journalism, the journalists on the ground, even the human rights defenders. How we can support their work to be able to continue and supporting the other Papuan activists on the ground, and also there's um, a lot of um supporting messages coming from the indigenous people's struggle from the Philippines, also um, around the world that people join in solidarity. So it was a, a great um, session.
0: Ronnie, is this the first time the Indonesian government has brought in the, the charge of treason?
4: No, it's not first time that the Indonesian government, but the case of the Bali Papan seven is signalling to us that the Indonesian government is tightening its law on any Papuans or anyone in West Papua trying to organize any peaceful demonstration, they will be met with Indonesia's unjust laws. The last case that the Treason charges was laid was in two thousand eleven with the Repura five and this was after the outcome of the third Papuan People's Congress in 2011, where the leaders declared, were detained, charged under prison, to spend at least um, three years behind bars. But um, the number of years, we can look back, it goes back to 2004, when Philip Karma, uh, one of the former political prisoners of conscience, conscience, was charged to 15 years imprisonment for raising the Morningstar flag. So between 2004 and the case of the Balik Papuan 7, we are seeing that the number of years have increased from the maximum of three years to now between five to 17 years. And so that's an indication that, the, the, that Jakarta is signaling to the Papuans, And at the same time as well, in terms of the treason charges, doesn't matter if it's uh, an anti-racism protest or for environmental concerns, for Indonesia, the way they view it, it's all within the framework or legal framework of treason.
0: Time is short, Ronnie. What are you wanting people to do? Between now,
4: when the um, listeners are hearing this, um, I'm pleading to the listeners and supporters to please go online. And there is a petition, online petition, that is calling for any organisations so or even individuals, to put your name, and we'll be submitting that. Prior to the final verdict, which falls on Wednesday. And also, um, to take a photo, or video with a short one sentence, three, seven Papuan anti-racism activists now and share it online. Um, that's one way to do and to, um, to support them. But, at, um, in the long run, also make contact with the Papuan office in Melbourne the, in, at Dockland, Atriate, and Talk to our crew there, how you can um, support. Because one thing we need is, um, you know, people to come in with their skill set, the capacity that they can bring to support the Papuans, to be the voice in echoing their struggles and how we could work collaboratively in that sense. So, yeah, uh, once again, thank you, Jen, for this opportunity to be able to speak to you as well, because that is a very important medium to really keep the voice of West Papua on air and for people to hear about
5: the
0: struggles of West Papua. Thank you. West Papua activist Ronnie Karini. And if you'd like to sign the petition, the office number is 0420 and the place on the web to register your protest is http colon double backslash bit.ly slash F R W E T A P O L repeat those zero four two zero two five zero three eight nine and HTTP colon double backslash B I T dot L Y slash F R